Welcome to the New Books Network. Nuclear weapons project power even when they're not used. To take just a recent example, when President Putin started talking about nuclear weapons days after his invasion of Ukraine, there was a notable chilling in the Western official response to the crisis. It's an example of how nuclear policy can drive events, but often in a somewhat unacknowledged way. Fred Kaplan has studied the use of nuclear weapons for decades, and he's distilled much of that work in his book, The Bomb, Presidents, Generals and the Secret History of Nuclear War. It's an overview of US nuclear policy from 1945 to now. So, uh, Fred Kaplan, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. And let's just start right at the beginning, 1945. And there's a very interesting opening to your book as you describe the rivalries between the US Army, the Navy and the Air Force sort of driving nuclear policy in those early years. Tell us about that. Right. So the bomb was dropped at the end of World War II by the Army Air Forces, the US Army Air Forces. After the war, because bombing was involved in so much of World War II, the Air Force was made into an independent service. And they got custody of the bomb. Uh, for the first few years of this, there was a huge fight between the Air Force and the Navy. The Navy wanted the defenses to focus mainly on big aircraft carriers, uh, the Air Force bombers. The Army was sort of, you know, in those years, was almost completely dismantled. So huge fights. Uh, there was kind of a comical or tragicomical <clears throat> congressional hearing where at some point a Navy admiral tried to, <clears throat> well, on the one hand, they were saying, you know, the, the bomb, it's horribly, it's immoral, it kills people. It's just a dreadful thing. And yet they would also argue if you uh, set off an atomic bomb on one end of National Airport's runway and you stood at the other wearing a shirt, you wouldn't be hurt. So it was just kind of incredible. The Air Force won the fight. But then the Navy got into atomic weapons in, in a very big way themselves. And the subsequent arms race especially in its early stages in the late 50s and early 1960s, was as much a battle between the Air Force and the Navy as it was between the United States and the Soviet Union. Right. And it was another sort of contest, which was politicians and military officers, you know, from all all the services. So I think if you could tell us about the single integrated operational plan, which is a big feature of, of nuclear policy at this time. Just could you tell us about that? What was it and why did it matter so much? Right. So in the late 50s, the Air Force had their weapons, nuclear weapons. The Navy had their nuclear weapons on, on surface ships, largely. The Army had a lot of short to medium range nuclear weapons in, in Western Europe. And so the, the head of Strategic Air Command, which was the division of the Air Force in charge of the bomb, headed by a rather famous character named General Curtis LeMay came up with an idea that this really ought to all be unified under one plan, because otherwise, you know, you'd all be hitting the same targets over and over. It was, it had to be, it was just silly to keep it all separate like this, but involved in this plan, it was called the single integrated operational plan or the PSYOP. It was also a big air force power play because what happened was that, 
the people who knew about nuclear targeting and how to do an attack plan and how to do the timing of it were all at the Strategic Air Command. So they ran the plan. And they had the Navy weapons going after secondary or tertiary targets. And so it became an excuse for the Air Force to build even more and more weapons. And how this worked was that Air Force intelligence went around, they they tried to spot targets in the Soviet Union. You know, sometimes they would see something like a, a, you know, a, a farmhouse and they could say, well, you know, by through reconnaissance satellites, well, there might be a missile hidden in there. So that became a target. The more targets there were, the more weapons the Air Force needed to bomb them. There were certain targets that were very important. You really had to hit them, like uh, Soviet bomber bases or submarine pens or, you know, vital military targets. The weapons in those days weren't very accurate and they were of unknown reliability. So they would say, okay, we need to have a 97% chance of destroying these targets. And therefore, to get that kind of damage probability, you needed to fire two, three, sometimes even four weapons at those targets. So the more of those kinds of targets there were, the more weapons you need. So this set in motion a kind of secondary effect of the arms race. The more weapons that the Soviet Union built, the more weapons we would need to build to hit those weapons. And in fact, we would need a multiple of those kinds of weapons because it took more than one to destroy them. And at the same time, the Navy was was trying to get into this game as well. So there became second and third order arms races to the point, just jumping ahead of our story a little bit, by night. By the early 1970s, uh, each the, the Soviet Union and the United States each had more than 30,000 nuclear weapons of one sort or another. Exactly. And just before we get on to the various presidential policies on this, I mean, you set out the background to it beautifully, but just, just um, to give an example, Tixi in the Arctic Circle. Tell us about what the planners had in mind for Tixi. Well, yeah, for example, this was one thing that, that nobody knew until I got these documents declassified for my first book in 1983, The Wizards of Armageddon. Some of these documents were subsequently reclassified and then declassified again. But to, to give you an idea of the kinds of targets that, that were being aimed at, and this, this got to be more in, in the later PSYOPs, say by the 1980s, the Soviets had an air base in the Arctic Circle. It couldn't even be used for two-thirds of the year. It was too cold. More than that, it was a recovery base. In other words, it wasn't a base where the Soviets would ordinarily have bombers. It was a base that their bombers would land on after flying to the United States and dropping their bomb load on them. Nonetheless, the PSYOP allocated 17 nuclear weapons to this one air base. I mean, that's the kind of... by, by the mid-80s, by even a little bit past the end of the Cold War, the sort of process of generating targets which generated further weapons, which generated even more targets, had become so baroque that you, you had this kind of overkill. I mean, a kind of overkill for which the, the very term overkill is, is a pale understatement. Right. And the, and the question really is, how on earth 
could such a situation arise? And and that's uh, the story of the various presidents. So let's begin at the beginning. Uh, Eisenhower, what was his view of the bomb and how it should be used? Well, it's very interesting. Eisenhower, you know, he was five-star general in World War II, commanding commander of, of, of forces in Europe, uh, a war hero, became president on the basis of that, and also was elected uh, on the campaign slogan that he would get the troops out of Korea, which, which he did. His view, which was strange for an army general, was that, look, if there's a war between the United States and the Soviet Union, it's going to turn nuclear very, very quickly. And therefore, the decisive thing was to deter the war from breaking out in the first place. And he thought that the way you do that is to threaten the Soviet Union with absolute obliteration. Even if they, not if they launched a nuclear attack first, but no, even if they just invaded a little bit of allied territory, if they occupied West Berlin, or they invaded even just a little slice of West Germany, we would respond by unleashing all of our nuclear weapons all at once against, you know, at the time it was thought that it, at the time it was thought that the Soviet Union and China were, were basically all the same country. So against the Sino-Soviet complex, as they called it, and all the satellite nations in Eastern Europe as well. And his Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, gave a famous speech about this in 1954. Uh, call, and he called the policy massive retaliation. And the idea was, you know, we are not going to play the Soviets' game of sending armies to, to counter every place where they might, uh, you know, mount an invasion or an incursion. No, we're going to say, you invade any part of the free world, we put it on our terms instantly by blowing you to smithereens. Mutually assured destruction. Was that the beginning of that? That's what it was later called. But, you know, back to your point about PSYOP, what, what, what people didn't realize until much, much later, the massive retaliation was enormous. I mean, at the time, it had a war begun in, say, 1960, and we instituted this policy, which, by the way, was also adopted by the Joint Chiefs of Staff as the policy. There was no plan B. This was it in case of a, a general war with the Soviet Union. It would have involved... 3,700 nuclear weapons, having the, the aggregate explosive power of about 7,000 7, megatons, against targets, more than 1,000 targets in the Russia, Soviet Union, China, and Eastern Europe. Someone in the Pentagon asked how many people would be killed. The, the calculation was at least 275 million people. And, and this did not include deaths from fallout in Western Europe or the United States. Nobody thought anything of this. I mean, you know, the, the idea that there might be some political aim for which the murder of 275 million civilians was justified is itself kind of shocking. Uh, and second, this would have been unleashed even in the slightest Soviet incursion into free world territory. Eisenhower himself was not a bloodthirsty man. There, there are entries from his diary where he, he's, he's, you know, he would get briefed on the effects of a nuclear war, and he was just horrified. These were very, very top secret briefings at the time. I mean, even the existence of the briefings was classified. 
but this hardened his view that we really had to have this massive retaliation policy because the, the, the key thing was to deter the Russians from doing anything aggressive. Uh, and and th- this was really the only way to do it. Next up, President Kennedy. Now, he had a defense secretary, uh, Robert McNamara, who became aware of the scale of the American plans, right, and and had doubts. Yeah. Well, Kennedy, you know, first of all, Kennedy came into office. He had bought this notion that uh, there was a missile gap, which was propagated by Air Force intelligence. In other words, that the Soviet Union was way ahead of us in missiles. So he came into office quite hawkish and, and, and willing to embark on a, on a, on a big buildup of, of nuclear weapons himself. But there were a few things that, that then happened. First, Robert McNamara, his Secretary of Defense, went out to Strategic Air Command for his PSYOP briefing. And the head of SAC at the time was a guy who had been LeMay's deputy named General Tommy Power. Tommy Power was a guy that even LeMay once referred to him as a sadist. For example, during the briefing, at one point he noted that one of the targets that would have to be hit was an enormous surface-to-air defense radar in Albania, which at the time was a neutral country, but they did have a Soviet-controlled radar. And he said at one point, well, Mr. Secretary, I hope you don't have any friends or relatives in Albania because we're going to have to blow it to bits. And McNamara, who was a very sophisticated, educated guy, was, was just horrified by this whole thing. He comes back to Washington you know, just in disbelief that, that this was our war plan, realizing that, that you know, something had to be done. It, it just seemed preposterous to him that if, if the president wanted to launch a limited nuclear attack on Russia, by the time the order got to, to SAC, he would end up doing an all-out nuclear attack on Russia and China and every place else. So there were a group of, of defense intellectuals as they were called, at the RAND Corporation mainly, who had come up with an alternative strategy. That There were a bunch of people in the Democratic Party and some think tank people had thought that massive retaliation was coming to become, it was becoming a suicide pact because the Soviets were starting to build their own nuclear weapons. Therefore, if, say, the Soviets occupied West Berlin or invaded West Germany, and then we responded by nuking them, well, they would respond by nuking us. And then on a a more sophisticated level still, our massive retaliation policy becomes incredible. It loses credibility. Would we really respond to Russia by launching nuclear weapons if we knew that they would respond by launching nuclear weapons back at us? So it became a credibility issue. So some people at RAND came up with this other idea. Okay, let's say the Russians invade Western Germany or whatever. <clears throat> let's say we launch a very limited attack, nuclear attack, on all of their nuclear weapons, bomber bases, submarine pens, and then uh, we tell them, okay, look, stop your aggression. We have a bunch of nuclear weapons left over, which we have in places where you can't hit. We're going to start knocking off your cities if you keep this attack going. Now, it's interesting. <clears throat> I've t- I talked with people who came up with this strategic idea, which was called counterforce. 
they they weren't quite sure this would really work. But their view back then, I mean, it was taken for granted that there would probably be a war with the Soviet Union someday. It was taken for granted that if this happened, it would probably go nuclear pretty quickly. These people saw this as a possible way to keep this war limited, to keep the damage limited, to keep the war short. There weren't any illusions about this, at least at that time. So McNamara liked this idea, and he <clears throat> revised the PSYOP so that there would be five options that the president would have where he could do some of these limited options. Now, one thing I found out later, which was news even to the surviving people who helped write McNamara's revised PSYOP, is that Strategic Air Command never put it in, in place. In their own versions of the guidance, they would have things like, to the extent feasible, we shall you know, put in place this limited option, or to the extent it confer, conforms with military goals, we shall do that. And then they would always come up with some reason uh, for why, <laughs> why it wasn't feasible or why it didn't conform to our goals. So really well into the 1980s, and, and McNamara and his aides didn't even know this at the time until I got some, some additional documents declassified for, for my book, The Bomb, uh, their policy was never really put in place. It was massive retaliation for a long time to come. Now, the interesting thing about Kennedy, as I say, he came into office pretty hawkish and pretty willing to rely on the Joint Chiefs of Staff for, for their judgment. Pretty early on in his presidency, first with the Bay of Pigs, uh, with a possible war against Laos, and then with the Cuban Missile Crisis, he realized that these guys were really very smart and he should rely on his own judgment. He came. He was given the, the war briefing, you know, the, the PSYOP briefing, the thousands of weapons, and he was also given the briefing on this more limited nuclear option, which, which only involved dropping 88 atomic bombs from 44 bombers. But then he would actually read the footnotes, and he saw that even in that limited attack, if the Russians retaliated just a little bit, millions of people could be killed in Western Europe and hundreds of thousands in the United States. And, and Kennedy set forth a, a template that, that I found quite common to, to subsequent presidents. And that is, they would get into the, the, the logic of this uh, of the nuclear war plan, and it was a pretty tight logic. It made sense on its own terms, but then they would step away from it. They would view it from a from a broader perspective, and they would realize, I am not going down that path. At one level, it made sense, and at another level, it made no sense at all. Yes, exactly. We should talk about the crises that Kennedy faced in in Berlin and Cuba, and basically that taught him, did it? That yes. when it came to it you know, you're not going to use them. The Berlin crisis, which most people forget, took place in 1961. Khrushchev and Kennedy met in the spring of 61, and Khrushchev kind of overpowered him. And he basically said, I guess I have to review this too. People below a certain age don't remember this, but, you know, Berlin was inside, 100 miles inside Eastern Europe, East Germany, part of the Warsaw Pact. West Berlin was a tiny island uh, within East Germany, we occupied it, the West occupied it after World War II. 
So Khrushchev says, look, you get out of West Berlin. Let's, let's end World War II, as he put it. You get out of West Berlin. It becomes part of East Germany by the end of the year, or I'm going to invade it. We're kicking war. And th that's when Kennedy got interested in, in alternatives to the all-out nuclear war plan. At the same time, around this time, Kennedy became aware there was no missile gap and that, in fact, we were way ahead of the Russians on missiles and Khrushchev had been bluffing. He has his deputy secretary of defense give a speech saying so. Khrushchev realizes his, his bluff was, has been called. He actually feared a United States nuclear first strike. He would have had nothing to retaliate with. At the time, in 1961, he had four intercontinental ballistic missiles. We had about 50. So he decides he needs something in the meantime. So he secretly puts medium-range missiles in Cuba, which would have the range to destroy targets in the United States in case the United States attack. Well, we saw this as an aggressive mood move. Kennedy assembles his, his advisors for 13 days to discuss what to do about it. At first, he puts a, a blockade. And then the myth which is still accepted as, as, as tr true by even many historians, is that Kennedy went eyeball to eyeball with the Russians, with Khrushchev, and Khrushchev blinked, and they pulled the missiles out, you know, afraid by our overwhelming force. But it was declassified many years ago. At one point, Kennedy is figuring out, and this is on the tapes, it's fascinating. He goes, I wonder why, this is like the third or fourth day of the crisis. I wonder why Khrushchev did this. I, I wonder if he needs a, a, a way out, a face-saving way out. The U.S. had just put similar kinds of missiles in Turkey, about as close to Russia as the Cuban missiles were to, uh, to the United States. I wonder if I pulled out the, the missiles from Turkey, that could be part of the deal. Nobody paid any attention to it. On the Friday before the last day of the crisis, Khrushchev, he sends him a telegram. There was no hotline then. They communicated by telegrams with, you know, 24-hour delays by Western Union. And he says, okay, look, I'll pull the missiles out if you promise never to invade Cuba. And Kennedy thinks, well, that's pretty good. Yeah, let's do that. But then Saturday morning, Khrushchev puts out an alternative proposal, and he makes it public. And he goes, okay, I'll pull my missiles out of Cuba if you take your missiles out of Turkey. Now, Kennedy's reaction is, well, this seems like a pretty good deal. This seems fair. Everybody around the table, not just the generals, but all the smart civilian guys, including McNamara, including Kennedy's brother, Robert Kennedy, went bananas. They hated this idea. This is horrible. It'll make us look soft. Turkey will see it as a betrayal. NATO will, will, will go up in smoke. And Kennedy kind of very calmly says, well, look, you know, um, the, the war plan was on the following Monday, if Kennedy hadn't, if, Kennedy, if Khrushchev hadn't pulled out the missiles, we were going to start launching conventional bombs against the missiles in, in Cuba and then invade Cuba five days later. And he goes, well, listen, you know, and then Kennedy thought that they would invade, that Russia would invade Berlin after this. He said, you know, if, if, if this if this all happens and they invade Berlin and then it gets out that this was on the table, that we could have ended the war before it started, this isn't going to be a very good war. Again, they all objected to it. Finally, Kennedy sends his brother to the Soviet ambassador and says, OK, we'll take the deal. You take your stuff out of Cuba now. We'll take our missiles out of Turkey in six months, but you cannot 
reveal this at all. This has to remain completely secret. And in fact, Kennedy didn't even tell a lot of his own people. He took six close advisors and he told them what he was doing. One of the people he did not tell, incidentally, was Vice President Lyndon Johnson. After Kennedy was assassinated and Johnson became president, Johnson thought that Kennedy won the Cuban Missile Crisis by being very hard-assed. And he took that lesson with him into Vietnam and other crises. And in fact, many years later, George Bundy, Kennedy's national security advisor, said in his memoir, which was published after he died, that we made a huge mistake in keeping the true nature of how the crisis was resolved secret those years. It led to many false lessons about how you deal with crises. So, you know, this was on the one hand, Kennedy was becoming, he wanted to end the Cold War. After the Cuban Missile Crisis, he and Khrushchev set up the hotline. They started negotiating a test ban treaty. They started talking about serious reductions in forces in Europe. But politics were such that he didn't want to come off like anything but a Cold Warrior. He thought that if it had been revealed that he had made a deal with Khrushchev to end the Cuban Missile Crisis, he would be impeached. So he kept that a secret for all those years, and and, uh, it was a tragedy. You mentioned Vietnam there, which takes us on to Nixon. And one of the points you make about that is that Nixon sort of tried to do what Putin just did, you know, to use the nuclear, the existence of the weapons as part of his power projection, but it didn't really work. Right. Nixon came into office, and we have this from the, the memoir of Robert Haldeman, one of his top aides. He had this idea. He goes, okay, he called it the madman theory. And he told Henry Kissinger, his national security advisor, Henry, I want you to go to the Paris peace talks, which were you know going on with North Vietnam. Uh, and I want you to tell them, this guy Nixon's crazy. Uh, you know, you know that he's an intense anti-communist. Well, he's also nuts. And, and Jesus, if we, if we don't come to a peace very soon, he's going to drop the bomb. He's going to use nuclear weapons on, on Vietnam. Well, it didn't work. As you say, it didn't work. And I think the reason why it didn't work is because uh, they didn't think he was that crazy. Uh, And and he tried to, at at a few times during his presidency, he tried to pull this. He, He would, or had Kissinger meet with Soviet leaders about a Middle East crisis and say, well, Nixon's going to use the bomb on this one. And it never happened. And after a while, they just stopped paying any attention to these threats. And they just proceeded as if the threats had never been made. So it's a, it's a very strange thing. But, but, but here you have it. And there's one thing very, very interesting about, about Nixon that, that surprised me looking at some recently declassified documents. Nixon and Kissinger are going over the PSYOP again. And it's the same old PSYOP that, that McNamara had inherited, that he thought that he'd revised, but he didn't. It's massive retaliation. And Kissinger, who, you know, had been a student of and, and, and written books about nuclear strategy himself, just found this incredible. And he said in an NSC meeting, according to the minutes, he goes, you know, if Nixon, if, if he comes into a crisis and, and the Russians invade someplace and his only option is to do nothing or to kill 80 million people, he's going to do nothing, which I found just fascinating. 
Right, that's um, so interesting, isn't it? So, I mean, that, that was exactly the same issue that had been there, what, sort of 20 years or 15 years before? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Unresolved. And then, I guess, is it fair to say Jimmy Carter was the first one to try and sort of resolve it by by arguing for arms control? Well, I mean, Nixon did some arms control too, but yeah, it's very two, some very interesting things about Carter. First, you know, he did have a very moral view of nuclear weapons. He thought they were evil. You know, he was a very religious man. He thought they were evil. He wanted to get rid of them. He would say these things openly to, to the great alarm of his advisors uh, and, and, and people in Europe who were still being protected by the nuclear umbrella. But... What's also very interesting is that, you know, every year there, there's a nuclear war game and some cabinet officer plays the president and some sub cabinet officers play the cabinet officers and they simulate, you know, it's a tabletop thing. It's just a game. Well, President Carter was the first president and I believe he, he remains the only president to play himself in not one but two of these games. And, and when he was told that, that no other president had done this before. He was kind of appalled. I mean, this is like the most existential, just the most profound thing a president could ever do. And he was amazed that no president had ever done it before. He also very much involved his vice president, Walter Mondale. He was the first president to involve his vice president in any of these games. And in fact, it was starting with Carter that the vice president also travels around with what they call the football, you know, the, 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 the case that contains all the information needed to, to launch a nuclear attack. He also actually carried out random drills. You know, it'd be like Friday night at 9.30, and he would today tell his national security advisors, Big Neb Brzezinski, okay, put out the word that uh, there's warning of a nuclear attack. We've all got to do our stuff. I mean, Physically, you know, the Secretary of Defense was supposed to get to a special phone. The president or vice president was supposed to be taken away by helicopter to an undisclosed location. This happened several times. He he actually put the nuclear war machinery into, sh- you know, ship shape more than any president before him. So at the same time, there were the first nuclear war plans put in place that really did put in place limited nuclear options. Part of this was a a consequence of technology. Nuclear weapons had actually become much more accurate by that time, which means you could reduce their explosive yield, which means you could actually hit some isolated military targets without killing very many civilians as a collateral damage. There were also improvements in command control devices that you could launch. You know, you could launch a certain segment of the nuclear arsenal without just having to to launch all of it. And so there were new doctrines put in place that called for attacking military targets or attacking leadership targets or, you know, trying to keep a nuclear war limited. Now, I actually interviewed President Carter for this book, and, and he had pretty good memory about this. It's not, it's not as if he had any illusions about whether a nuclear war could be kept limited or whether nuclear weapons uh, were simply conventional weapons writ large. But he was appalled at how many hundreds of millions of people would get killed 
in a nuclear war. He could not dismiss the possibility that there might be one. And so he tried to institute some policies that, that could possibly, even if it was a low probability, reduce the damage. So are you, are you saying there that, I mean, it's partly technological change you're saying, but also that Jimmy Carter actually succeeded in controlling the military strategists in a way that his predecessors hadn't, actually? Well, you know, in some ways, yes. In other ways, no. The ways, no, it would get up to Strategic Air Command and, you know, it would say that the goal would be something like destroy leadership targets. And that would lead to some questions. Well, what, what, do you, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about the Kremlin? Are we talking about the Ministry of Defense? Are we talking about, you know, the Dacha uh, or the Minister of Defense or the min- Chief of... What does it mean? And, and then, uh, then, you know, raising another question, well, if we destroy the leadership, who are we going to negotiate with to end the war? So in all of these things, you would have this, this very interesting, appealing concept, but even with the best of, uh, even with the most sincere of intentions, nobody quite figured out how to translate this into an actual plan. That remained quite vague. Nobody could really, and then, you know, all of these, you know, Herman Kahn once wrote a book in the early 60s called On Escalation. And he talked about, you know, 38 rungs of, of, of 38 rungs of escalation in nuclear war. Well, look, to be quite honest, anytime anybody starts firing off any nuclear weapons, the amount of radiation, electromagnetic, quite aside from the death and destruction, the amount of radiation, electromagnetic pulse fires, it could be that, that communications, communication satellites, reconnaissance, they could be all burnt out. Each president, it's not like it'd be two chess masters looking over a chessboard and pondering the next move. It would be two presidents running for their lives in a state of complete chaos and, and anarchy and confusion about what's going on. There would be not even any way of knowing whether that target that you aimed that ICBM at was hit, much less destroyed. You would have no idea what was going on. And therefore, the, 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 these notions, which one still reads about, you know, in articles in foreign affairs and, and in papers by, you know, the International Institute for Strategic Studies, of these fine-tuned you know, nuclear strategies and exchanges, at, at best, it's completely untested. At worst, it could be total fantasy. And, and, and you get yourself into more trouble by even imagining that these things are possible than, than accepting from the beginning that this is just going to be a, a hellscape from, from, from the get-go. Uh, in, in that sense, there might even be some wisdom in, in the view of massive retaliation, that, that some of the more sophisticated strategies later ig- ignore at their peril. Right. And, and then, so interesting to hear you say all this, because, of course, all these dilemmas are still present. You know, oh, these weapons are still absolutely. There, yeah. And, you know, put, yeah. put yourself in, in your position, though, and, and I feel myself the same way. If you are the president, and, and, and you know, in our system, the president is the one who makes the decision. There's no cabinet meeting. There's no vote in Congress. He has absolute power to do that. He's supposed to consult. You know, there's a meeting, there's a phone call, but he is the one who, or she is the one who makes the decision. And so you're sitting there and, uh, or, or let's say that, that you're the one who's deciding on the war plan. 
and you've gone through the logic of it in you know, three ways in and out, and you realize, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a hellscape. <clears throat> On the other hand, if somebody told you, you know, sir, there's a five percent chance that if we do option C, we might be able to ground this war to a halt before it all breaks out into complete devastation. Well, you know, don't you have an obligation to perhaps to pursue that 5% chance? And once having done that, then your military underlings have an obligation to buy, devise, and test the weapons that, that would make that possible and to devise and test and rehearse the war plans that make that possible. So in a way, what, what's happened over the decades is that the concept of credible deterrence becomes a concept of nuclear war fighting. They become indistinguishable. And, and that, that is kind of the ultimate tragedy of nuclear weapons. This, this dilemma, this paradox, this tragedy is an inherent part of, 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 of the nuclear age, of having nuclear weapons in, in, in large numbers. We still have quite a few presidents to get through. So, uh, but what the next one is particularly interesting, actually, uh, and then maybe we'll accelerate through his uh, his successors. But Ronald Reagan came in quite quite uh, bullish on nuclear policy, yeah. didn't he? And and then changed his mind. So, can you talk us through that? Right. Well, it's fascinating, and, and in fact, I learned quite a lot going through some archives. Uh, yeah, he came in not only hawkish, but I mean, he he had the hawks of hawks of his. Uh, among his aides, they would talk openly about fighting and winning a nuclear war. You know, he would talk openly about overthrowing the, the Soviet government. But it turns out that secretly he was kind of a nuclear abolitionist. And when he came up with Star Wars, you know, this idea of a shield, he, he was maybe the only one who believed that it actually might work and that we could share it with other countries, including the Soviet Union, so that we could prevent nuclear weapons from exploding. And th there's a fascinating thing. In his first term, there was intelligence information that the Soviets were, were taking his bellicose rhetoric very seriously, sincerely thought that we were planning to launch a nuclear first strike. Reagan kind of steps back. Uh, he, he decides, OK, I've, I've, got, I've got to backpedal on some of this stuff. And Andropov dies. Chernyenko dies. Here comes Gorbachev kind of looking like he might be a reformer. The two of them meet in Geneva in 1985. Their first session doesn't go well. It's quite tense. They decide to take a walk along the lake, duck into a cabin. Reagan, Gorbachev, and their translators, not even any aides. Gorbachev revealed this story years later, and it was confirmed that at one point in their conversation, Reagan leans in and he says, if the United States was invaded by aliens from outer space. Would you come to our defense? And Gorbachev says, absolutely. <laughs> and Reagan says, I feel the same way. And they walk back into the main hall and they're laughing and joking like they were old friends. You know, Secretary of State George Shultz is looking at this like, what happened? What happened? And this set in motion the course of the next few years where they both engage in really quite radical nuclear arms reductions, uh, taking steps toward a genuine end of the Cold War, 
uh, it's fascinating that you have these two people. The probably the most unlikely president and unlikely Communist Party general secretary in our respective nations' histories, and yet they 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 collided on this planet at the same time, <laughs> and they converged to create a, 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 a consequence that that somewhat more bellicose general secretaries and somewhat more liberal arms controlish American presidents would not have would would not have. Uh, would not have, have managed. I don't think in none of them would have said, you know, at Reykjavik, Reagan and Gorbachev were on the verge of getting rid of all of their nuclear weapons. No previous president would have even talked about anything like this. So it, it's just one of these fascinating contingent accidents of history. You know, people who look at history as just a structural thing and where individuals don't matter much are, are making a huge mistake and and the convergence of of Reagan Gorbachev is you know exhibit a in, in that argument I think well, well there's, a, there's an exhibit B as well which I'd just like to to, to ask you about because um, you know it's often people look at the espionage business with a slightly sort of uh, you know skeptical eye and wonder yeah. what it all amounts to and what's the point of it and so on but Gordievsky the Soviet agent that the British had was revealing to Reagan via the British, right. just how fearful the Russians were. Yeah. And as I understand it from your text, Reagan saw this material and thought, oh, right, they, they, they really are scared yeah. about us. You know, previously he just right. thought it was all the other way around. That's right. NATO, NATO was carrying out a war game. It was a particularly hawkish war game. They were doing an exercise that involved the transition from a conventional to a nuclear war. And they were carrying us pretty realistically. Airplanes were flying over with radio silence. Units were actually going on alert. The Soviets were watching this. We knew they were watching it. And yeah, Gordievsky was the one telling his Western contacts, hey, and Dropoff and all these other guys, they're taking this very seriously. They think you really are going to. And, and very interestingly, years later, the president's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board did a very intense study. You know, because a lot of people in the CIA think, oh, this is nonsense. They're just faking it. They know this isn't real. But this this board did a huge study and produced an enormous report, which much of which has since been declassified, where they concluded that, yeah, yeah, that this this was a real war scare. They thought that that we were about to launch a nuclear in, invasion and they were thinking about preemption. So Reagan, uh, that was one of the main things that, that convinced Reagan that, yeah, we've got to We've got to start stepping back. This, this is getting crazy. Let's crack on. George Bush the first, as it were, yes. the, the, you know, the, the first George Bush. What was his dilemma? What was his policy? Well, you know, his first dilemma was whether to carry on with Gorbachev. And it took a while for him to realize that Gorbachev was real. And he did so. But there was something else that happened behind the scenes in, uh, in Bush that, that I think hasn't been fully realized until I, I go through it quite thoroughly in this book. This is where the arms race came to an end and reversed, and it had nothing to do with arms control treaties or presidents. There was a civilian, and it had to do a lot with Secretary of Defense Dick Cheney, who was actually a kind of a different guy from the later vice president, Dick Cheney. But he gets his PSYOP briefing when he comes into power, comes into the Pentagon, and sitting with him is, a, is an aide, a civilian named Frank Miller. Uh, now, Frank had done a thorough review of all the previous revisions to the PSYOP and so forth, the limited options and all of this. 
and he's listening to the uh, psyop briefing, and he realizes what's going on here. There are no, they're, they're they're not talking about limited options at all, and that one part of the psyop they talked about dropping seven hundred nuclear bombs on the Soviet transportation network. What's going on here? And and uh, Cheney gave him a task to take some staff and go out to SAC headquarters in Omaha, Nebraska, and do a thorough review of the psyop. You know, look at every weapon on every target. No civilian had ever done this before. Nobody in Washington had ever done this before. And they came up with some astonishing ideas. And, and one of them was the thing we talked about earlier, that air base in the Arctic Circle, where there were 17 weapons. There was also, they realized that, okay, one of the, one of the target ideas was to destroy the Soviet, the Soviet tank army. Turned out this involved not just destroying all the tanks, also all the factories that built the tanks, all the metal factories where the, the metals rolled, all the mines were, I knew it was a crazy redundant plan. And then at one point, one of his aides, George Bush was, was doing some arms control negotiations with, with the Russians. And they were, they were thinking about going down to 6,000 nuclear weapons or around there from 12,000 each. And, uh, he says, now, he asked one of the targeting people, he goes, if we went down to that many nuclear weapons, uh, would that be okay? Would you still be able to carry out the policies? And he goes, well, I, I never asked that question. He goes, well, no, what I mean, he says, no, 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 I, I, know, what, I know what you mean. He goes, well, what, what is it that you do? And he goes, well, we take the weapons that we have and we put them on the targets that are out there. And that's when he realized, oh, my God, this has been a supply-side nuclear war plan. Nobody has ever officially, effectively asked the question, how much is enough? How many nuclear weapons do we really need to deter the Soviet Union and to limit damage of deterrence fails? It's all been very mechanical. We have X number of weapons. We have Y number of targets. Let's put the two together. He brings us back to his bosses in Washington who are appalled. And even generals in the Joint Chiefs of Staff had never known how completely mechanical, unthinking, and overwrought this nuclear war plan was. And so basically, Frank Miller got together with the people in SAC and said, okay, we're revising. We're taking away all this redundancy. We're not changing policy one bit. We're just getting rid of all the, the, the redundancy. And they were able to cut the number of nuclear weapons in the plan from 12,000 to, to 5,888. And then they were able to take out another couple thousand when the Soviet Union imploded because you no longer could hit those targets in Eastern Europe, which were now independent countries, some of them allies. I mean, it's a terrible story you're telling because it, <laughs> yes. it's, just, it's just like decades of the most important of all policies. And it's like totally out of control. It's, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, Nobody's not, on top of it. No, it's not governed by policy at all. So let me so let's jump ahead a little bit to Obama, because Obama decides he, he signs New START, the New START Treaty with Medvedev. And it cuts nuclear weapons a little bit. And Obama has been on record saying that he wants to reduce the role of nuclear weapons in foreign policy. So he decides to have another one of these reviews. And I don't think he even knew about the Frank Miller review, but he goes, let's, let's get together and let's just do a thorough look at the war plan and see if we can cut back some more. At the time, we had 1,500 
nuclear war, nuclear weapons. You know, some, some of his top aides and the strategic command commander meet every couple of weeks for about four months, and they go over the whole thing. I mean, really thorough. And again, this is all very, very classified. I, I talked with several people who were involved in this exercise, but none of it is officially unclassified. And they come up with the conclusion that, yeah, we could cut this down by a third. We could cut it back down to a thousand without any damage to national security. But then all the generals said, but we have a caveat. We would not endorse this kind of cut unless the Russians also agreed to a similar cut. And Obama, who though he was a visionary in many ways, was also quite pragmatic in policy, was also against the idea of unilateral cuts, if just for a practical reason. He wanted negotiations to go on. If you start cutting unilaterally, you lose all leverage to have the other guy cut. And then, of course, Putin comes back, and then there's the incursion into Ukraine and the revival of the new Cold War and now of the invasion of Ukraine and so forth. But there was another moment where if somebody in charge had just said, you know, to hell with what the Russians are doing, however much they're wasting their money on these nuclear weapons beyond what they need, or China, we've decided this is how many nuclear weapons we need to deter an attack and to try to control the damage of deterrence fails. And that's it. We're stopping. That's it. We could have got it down to a thousand anyway. And even that wasn't looking at any changes in the actual policy. In other words, that was just getting rid of the fluff. That was getting to the point where, you know, as one of the people involved in the study put it, where the rubble would only bounce once instead of two or three times. Yeah, we, we've sort of skipped over Clinton and George W. Bush, but I think we're going to just do that and say that they basically dealt with the North Korea issue, which remains unresolved. And that was their big nuclear policy challenge, if you like. And and then we got on to uh, Trump. And, you know, and that's a whole different story, isn't it? Yeah. Which is a story in itself. And uh, we get to Trump. And of course, the question that arose in many people's minds when he took over and during his administration was that he seemed so irrational. Should he be trusted with this massive decision? That's right. Uh, and, and was there any attempt to rein in his powers? Well, no, no, there really isn't. There was, in fact, a Senate hearing early on in Trump, and it was the first Senate hearing on this issue since the mid-70s, where they talked about, you know, command and control of nuclear weapons. And it was all quite clear that the president can do what he wants. And even a couple of Republicans said, you know, let, let, let's let's strip away the let, let, what we're really talking about here is we've got a, a guy, an irresponsible guy in the White House who might blow up the earth. And there was some interesting it was a very interesting set of hearings. It was open and there was some talk about doing some things for a couple of weeks. But there was even an amendment put on the Senate floor that, that the president has to get a, approval by a certain number of colleagues before he can launch nuclear weapons. But it went nowhere because it was thought, well. You know, the Russians or the Chinese or whoever think that that, you know, the president might get involved in some lawsuit in order to launch nuclear weapons. That's not going to do much for deterrence. So they just let it all fly again. And we're all just sort of, you know, running and running in traffic. <laughs> now, then there's one question I want to ask before we go. And I'll ask you a bit about the future finally. But just on the nuclear accident thing, you know, it, if people like me who sort of vaguely follow this sort of thing read articles from time to time saying there was a flock of geese that came over and it nearly triggered it and there was some magnificent colonel who 
uh, disobeyed the protocols and saved the world. Is any of that true? It's all true. It's really? all true. Uh, as late as, uh, yeah, what you're talking about is uh, Soviet radars indicated that, uh, had, yeah, I forget, I think 150 ICBMs were being launched toward the Soviet Union. And this was at a tense time. This was in 1983. And there was one colonel who decided, no, this probably isn't true and didn't send up word to his superiors. There are things like that in, in the United States as well. There, there's in the Carter Library, there are there are four or five incidents that happened under Carter where, owing to a software error, uh, you know, a nuclear war, it was like that movie War Games, a nuclear war exercise was run as if it was so say, the real thing. Brzezinski woke up Carter two o'clock in the morning on one occasion. On one occasion, it wasn't conclusively determined that this was not real until after the time that the bombs would have landed had it been real. This is one reason, by the way, why some people have have called for just getting rid of land-based missiles. They're a target. By being at once the most lethal weapons and the most vulnerable weapons, they create an incentive for preemption. They make the possibility of an accidental war more likely. Let's just keep it on bombers that can take off of runways without, you know, and being able to call back and submarines, which are underneath the ocean, undetectable, invulnerable. And there's a point to that. We, we, I'm often asked, you know, why hasn't, and, and if, you would, if you would ask somebody in, say, 1960, uh, do you think that by the year 2022, nobody will have used nuclear weapons in a war? They would have scoffed at the notion is completely impossible. How, why, how is it that, that, that we haven't? Well, one reason I think nuclear deterrence to a certain extent works. You know, you blow up us, you blow us up, we'll, we'll blow you up. Uh, there's a certain compelling, <laughs> compelling thing to that. Another, uh, a lot of nuclear-capable countries have foregone the option of nuclear weapons because they don't want the responsibility and they, they trust the U.S. nuclear umbrella. I don't know how long, much longer that will last. But part of the reason is just plain luck. We have not had a serious, plausible accident, you know, it's a warning of a nuclear attack that takes place at the height of a crisis. You know, what if there had been a, an ac a, a false alert during the Cuban Missile Crisis? That might have been, you know, that might have been, Kennedy might have found very few reasons to, to not preempt. This is, uh, we, we've gone over in this conversation many inherent tragedies in the very existence of a nuclear weapon. And, and many of them irresolvable, as, as most tragedies are. It's now nearly impossible to, to work out some kind of political arrangements uh, to, to lower risks and reduce tensions with, with Russia and China. And, and we can only hope that uh, in however many years remain between now and the coming of the next detente and rapprochements, that we don't have a, a, a terribly timed accident. Looking ahead, I think you're saying there will still be too many weapons, that proliferation may well happen, could happen, accidents could happen, and disarmament is not going to happen. Disarmament, you know, look, compared with a peak, 30,000 nuclear weapons each, the height of the Cold War, 1,500, maybe 2,000 now, you know, that's, that's good. There used to be 7,000, the United States used to have 7,000 nuclear weapons in Western Europe. 
Now there are 180, all of them on, on bomber planes. The trends are good in that direction. The political trends aren't great. The, the phenomenon of more countries talking about nuclear weapons as instruments of national policy and not just as tools of deterring nuclear war, but actually of, of helping to win them. These are all very disturbing. And uh, again, one, the, the, biggest, the biggest reason for hoping for some kind of settlement of all the crises between the U.S., Russia, China, and Britain now is that we can at least tackle with, with some of the uh, side issues of these nuclear matters. Uh, you know, some forums where you can actually talk about a crisis while it's going on. Those forums still do exist, but they're becoming more and more tenuous. So yeah, th- this, is, this is not a, a great time. The, the one hope, as I say, is that at least in, in the experiences of, of what I've read, the presidents who have gotten the most deeply immersed in the issues have come out of it, understanding the logic quite thoroughly, but realizing that, it, that it's a dead end and are determined that in the event of a crisis, and in a few presidential terms, when a crisis actually happened, de- de- determined to find some diplomatic way out. And, uh, and having a leader on the other side who's, who's accommodating that path as well. Fred Kaplan, that, that hour is whizzed by. Thank you very much. Sure, thank you. Pleasure. Thank you very much for telling us about your, you know, decades of research and distilling all that knowledge for us. Thanks.